Mark 13 this morning. If you're new to the valley or new to rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible and see what God has said to us there. And we've made it all the way up to Mark chapter 13. This section is actually the largest section, I'm sorry, the largest teaching portion of Jesus' ministry that's included in the book of Mark. It also just so happens to be the most difficult passage today is notorious for the fits that it has caused the best of theologians, and wading through the myriad of interpretations is no easy task, as I am able to attest to after this week. It's been understood in a variety of ways by devout and godly people who are seeking to submit to the truth of Scripture. They would say, we just flat out disagree, right? So guys that I normally go to that are foundational, like if these two guys agree, they've probably got it right, I might have it wrong, they're disagreeing with one another about this text. And one of the first things we can learn from that is is that we don't need to be alarmed, right? That we should, instead of being alarmed, allow this fact to sharpen our own thinking and to teach us that it's okay to and how to disagree about things that are not clear in the Scripture, I think this text is an opportunity for us to remember that, as Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. It's a little bit easier to remember when he says it because he has that sweet Scottish accent, but the, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so this morning, we're going to try and focus primarily on that which is plain in our text. And about the fuzzy parts, uh, you'll be getting my two cents throughout. And so if you strongly disagree with my interpretation, don't sweat it. Just focus on what is main and primary in the text. And and what I, I think is primary in the text is that Jesus is not concerned most fundamentally with eschatological information, but with exhortation. His fundamental aim is for faithfulness rather than an explanation of the future. His purpose seems to be to encourage his followers to faithful discipleship in the present. When Jesus talks about the future, his words are meant to change the way we live right now. I've tried to summarize the main idea for you is this. Trouble will come and the king will return. Trouble will come and the king will return. And my goal this morning is to exhort you to be on guard. You're going to see that phrase over and over again. To endure, you'll see that phrase. To stay awake, to watch, to live ready, to live on call. Let's pray and get started together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to think clearly, to feel deeply, and to respond appropriately to your word. We thank you that you've given us your word and that through it you've communicated who you are to us, but you have not exhausted all there is to know about you in your word, Lord. There is infinitely more. And as uh, fallen creatures, we just pray that you would help us to do our best to understand uh, the parts of you that you have communicated to us. Help us to understand you well, to love you, We thank you that you are more complex than we could ever imagine and that we will spend eternity getting to know you. What a great adventure it is to be in love with you, our loving God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 13. 
And as he came out of the temple, that's Jesus coming out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus and his crew are exiting the temple complex, which is going to conclude the whole temple scenario that we've been in since the beginning of chapter 11. Remember, Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey, kind of signaling that he's the Messiah to everybody as they shouted out, Hosanna. And then he went into the temple, didn't do anything went back out of town. Then he made his commute the next day. He cursed the temple and a fig tree along the way. Then he dealt with all those challenges to his authority. He's just finished his little teaching against the scribes and the story of the widow, he told us. And now they're leaving the temple. It's Passover week. So all of these things about Jesus' person and work, everything that's been going on in his ministry is starting to come to a head. We're heading towards the cross, and Jesus leaving the temple here, uh, it's not just him leaving the temple, I don't, I don't think. I think it gives us a physical picture of a spiritual reality. You see, the glory of God has left the corrupt temple. The glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ has left the temple, which ought to conjure up in our minds uh, thoughts of Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, when the glory of the Lord departs the temple. No longer will this be a place that serves as an outpost of God's people and God's glory and God's mission. Upon exiting the temple, the disciples are marveling at the splendor and the majesty of Jerusalem's buildings. I mean, remember, these are, these are country boys, right? They're from the sticks. They're fishermen. They haven't been around this great kind of architecture. And so when they see it, they're, they're amazed, as they should be. They're going, wow, do you see all these buildings, Jesus? And then Jesus plays the role of Debbie Downer, and, and he meets their excitement with, everything you see is going to be destroyed. I mean, uh, they might think at this point of Jesus as, my wife always calls me a fun vampire. Uh, she says, I suck the fun and the excitement out of everything. And I, I, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here, if you want to read it that way, but I don't think that's what's, what's going on. I don't, I don't think he says this to them to be mean, but to keep them sober. See, the bright lights of the big city can be intoxicating. The grandeur of the city can blur our vision of the coming city of God. That which appears permanent to us can distract us from that which is eternal. The disciples, along with their contemporary Jewish brethren, would have believed the temple to be God's sanctuary and virtually indestructible until the end of time, that is. And so in their minds, the end of the temple would have meant the end of the world. The two things are wrapped up together. They think end of temple means end of the world, And so Jesus saying that the temple is going to be destroyed, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, naturally leads them to ask this question in verse 4. They say this, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all things are about to be accomplished. You see, the disciples' question is actually twofold and tangled. They want to know, when will the temple be destroyed? That's the first question. And the second question is, how's the whole world going to end? Tell us, Jesus. And Jesus' response both answers and doesn't answer their question, right? He he doesn't tell them straight up, hey, uh, 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed. He doesn't offer that information just out of hand. Uh, And he doesn't tell them, hey, the end of the world is coming in, you know, I don't know, 2012, right? Like the Mayans predicted. 
has a movie on that, I think. He doesn't, he doesn't give them a prophecy chart or any way to figure out exactly when the end will come. He, he does, however, give them an answer in the form of prophecy. And his answer, like the disciples' question, is twofold and tangled. Uh, John Grasmick writes in his commentary, Jesus skillfully weaves together into a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives. The near event, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the far event, which is the coming of the Son of Man in clouds with power and glory. The near event is a forerunner or foreshadowing of the future universal event. In this way, Jesus followed the precedent of Old Testament prophets by predicting a far future event in terms of a near future event whose fulfillment at least some of his hearers would see. And so Jesus begins this complex teaching with these words in verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and of rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus is warning the disciples and us not to be led astray by false Christs, wars, or natural disasters. He points to these events as the beginning of birth pains that signal the end has not yet come. It's it's not here. These things are, are always occurring throughout history, wars and deceptions and disasters, and they are not signs of the nearness of the end. Instead, they function a little bit more like uh, Braxton Hicks contractions. Are, are you familiar with this? Have you heard of these? Uh, what they, they are, I'm told, I've never had one, uh, is basically they're practice contractions that come prior to the actual birthing event, and, and sometimes they're referred to as false labor. At any rate, what happens is if you take your poor wife to the hospital when she's having these, do you know what they do is is they they send you home. See, there's no labor here. They're just the beginning of of birthing pains. The actual birth is is far off. Likewise, if you go too early on and you're actually in labor and you're not dilated enough yet, they just tell you, hey, come back later. Oh, yeah, you always see in the movies it's a super intense thing. We've got to get to the hospital. The baby's coming right now. And, and when uh, Chelsea and I had Elliot, I just remember calling them and being like, do we need to come right now? I'm like, nah, you know, hang out for a couple hours, walk around, and you know, come in later when it, feels, when it feels right, like a little bit more eminent. So these are, these are birthing pains. They're, they're Braxton Hicks. And, and Jesus is making this analogy. He's telling us about these things in order to say, don't let current events or deceptions lead you astray into thinking that the end is right now. As we'll find out in verses 24 through 27, there will be no doubt about when the end is. The purpose of these verses is not to lure believers into speculations about the end, but to anchor them to watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. The question we need to ask is, how do we avoid being led astray? How do we avoid being led astray? I think the answer, easy answers, is by studying God's word, committing to prayer, and engaging in community with other believers. See, Christians are continually saved from theological error and from sin by simply being centered around God's word with God's people. It's one of the many reasons that God gave us the church. It's one of the many reasons why we ought to be committed to one another in church membership. 
The church is a community that helps protect us against being led astray by charismatic leaders or being caught up in uh, just these events, trying to predict the end. It keeps us focused on what God has called us to do, helps us to remember God's mission. As the people of God, we affirm and fight for one another's faith. We are vigilant to keep our hearts close to our good and mighty king and close to one another. Until the birth of the new heavens and the new earth, there will be labor pains. But as verse 7 tells us, we are not to be alarmed, but to recognize that they are a precursor to something wonderful that will eventually manifest upon Christ's return. We're to keep watch over one another as we wait for the return of the king. Think quite remarkably, the calamities in these verses don't impede or interrupt the kingdom. False Christ and wars and natural disasters, they do not stop the spread of the gospel, and nor will persecution. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus has warned his disciples not to be deceived, and indeed these disciples would quickly learn why vigilance in these matters is so important as they came across many a messianic pretender, many a war, and many a disaster leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And likewise, in these verses, Jesus is warning them not to be surprised when persecution comes. It's been clear since the church's inception that the people of God will suffer like their Messiah did. It happens. It continues to happen. And it happened to them. Yet instead of snuffing out the light of the gospel, persecution fans its flame. You've heard the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This idea that persecution actually ends up spreading the gospel and accomplishing God's will, I think, is typified in the book of Acts. If you want to flip over to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, I'm going to start at 7, but uh, starting at verse 8 is part of a mnemonic device I'm going to give you. So Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I told you a mnemonic device was coming, right? That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And now we're going to go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Get it? 1, 8, 8, 1. It's just the reverse. And so if we flip over to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I'm going to pause and give you a second and sip some water. We read this. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Note this. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4 is important here. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
The great persecution against the church results in the scattering of Christians and the spread of the gospel throughout the world. If you're familiar with Acts, you know that the book is about the acts of the Holy Spirit, how he empowers men and women of faith to do remarkable things in order to spread the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria and ultimately into the ends of the earth. In other words, the book catalogs the spread of the gospel throughout the world, at least the world that was known to the original audience, which I think is why Paul writes in in Colossians 1, 3 through 6, he says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And this is what Paul says of the gospel in verse 6 which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth. I mean, it's, it's incredible that we get to see Jesus predict some of these things and then read about their coming to pass in the lives of the disciples and of the apostles. The gospel goes unto the whole world and indeed is still being taken unto the ends of the earth. It's amazing. Persecution then and now still causes the gospel to flourish. James Edwards points out one of the takeaways from this section. He writes this, Suffering and persecution will afford believers unprecedented opportunities to declare their faith before kings, authorities, and rulers. And rather than abandoning them in their hour of crisis, God will empower them to witness to the nations. Just as God employed the suffering of the early church to expand the kingdom, so too does he utilize our sufferings to bring glory to himself. We said last week, looks can be deceiving, and indeed they can. Don't let the appearance of things fool you. God is in control of all things, and he's using everything, including deceptions and wars and natural disasters and persecutions, to bring about our good And his glory. The description of persecution continues in verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus' concern, again, it's not the trouble, but the response to the trouble that his people have. He is exhorting his followers to endure, to persevere. Perseverance in Christ is proof that our profession of Christ is real. Right, I always say, Dr. Aiken used to say when I was in seminary, he'd hold his hand like this for whatever reason, perseverance is proof of possession, like a mannerism he had. We persevere in the faith and thus prove that our confession of faith and the reality that we're united in Christ is true. Matthew records this portion of Jesus' teaching this way in chapter 24, uh, verses 10 through 13. It says, And many of them will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, I want you to hear this is the part, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, love is the mark of a true Christian. If one's love grows cold, it proves that one's faith is faulty. So the question is, does love mark you?
Enduring requires a sustained love for Christ, a sustained love for his people. Larry Trotter comments on this passage, Jesus' great teaching about the end times is to endure. And he expects us to endure by loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, and all our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. I like that. Brothers and sisters, don't let trouble turn your hearts cold. But instead, love God and love neighbor. Allow those passions to continue to be aroused within you. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the promises of God. Jesus continues in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I, I kind of love the insertion here, let the reader understand, because what it's mostly done is caused a ton of confusion. I mean, commentators, let the reader understand, no one understands, right? Uh, some think that the phrase is an editorial note by Mark, that Mark is saying, let the reader understand. Uh, I, and Matthew includes the same phrase, which leads me to believe that, that Jesus may have actually said this, and, and let me tell you why. I think he said, let the reader understand in order to bring to the minds of his listeners the original prophecy, which is written down, which they all would have read or at least heard, the original prophecy about the abomination of desolation. James Edwards explains this difficult verse in his commentary. The abomination that causes desolation is a phrase taken from three cryptic references in Daniel to a scandal that would defile and profane the Jerusalem temple. The same phrase is used in 1 Maccabees to describe Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, a Syrian general who outraged the Jews in 168 BC by erecting an altar to Zeus on the altar of burnt offering in the temple and sacrificing a sow on it. The sacrilege of Antiochus in the Jerusalem temple became the dramatic provocation for the Maccabean revolt, which against all odds earned Jews their only century of political self-rule between the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, and the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. In its original context, the abomination that causes desolation thus referred to the abomination wrought by Antiochus IV against the temple in Judaism in the second century BC. This event is recalled in verse 14 of chapter 13 as a prefigurement or a symbol of something equally outrageous and cataclysmic to occur in the future. So let me try to uh, give you this quote a little bit more, more simply. Uh, Daniel foretold that the abomination of desolation would defile uh, the Jewish temple. Years later, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, fulfilled this prophecy by building an altar to Zeus in the temple and then killing a pig on that altar, right? And so Jesus is, is now picking up that terminology and he's telling the disciples that there's a little bit more to this prophecy, right? That there's more to it. It's going to have multiple fulfillments. One of the fulfillments would come uh, when the Roman general Titus desecrated the temple in 70 AD after three years of sieging the city, which I think Luke's account helps us to see uh, a little more clearly in verse 20 of chapter 21 in his account. He, he writes it this way, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. See, once believers have recognized the abomination had come near, they're told in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. 
And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation, and that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. Uh, Full disclosure here, I think that because the language is so exalted, there's a possibility that this refers to something in the future, uh, which my premillennial friends, if you're familiar with that terminology, uh, they would say rah-rah. However, I'm an amillennial, and so from this perspective, I'm going to say most of all this this stuff has been fulfilled already in 70 AD with the fall. Um, Either way, uh, that Jesus is, is leading up to tell us about his second coming in verses 24 and 27. And, so, and then he'll return to talking about the temple because this is all in context of Jesus' discussion with the disciples. At any rate, main things, plain things. And so he's encouraging them here and he's giving some pretty specific instructions to the disciples and those that would read his word about fleeing from Jerusalem when they see these things happening. And, and what's awesome about this is many of the early believers did, right? When Roman armies surrounded the city uh, back in 66 AD, right before uh, Titus started to siege the city, a bunch of them fled to the mountains. uh, Jesus is saying this, and this doesn't look good, and so we're out of here. So they actually didn't find a whole lot of Christians uh, dead or killed actually inside of the city. Jesus predicts this coming destruction of Jerusalem and the deceptions that would lead up to those cataclysmic events. And and his exhortation to the disciples through all of this remains, be on guard. He tells them to be on guard because despite the horrendous troubles that will mark the time after his death, despite false Christs, despite wars, despite natural disasters, despite betrayals, despite persecutions, and despite all kinds of suffering, despite all appearances, the God-man will return and make everything sad untrue. He will make good on his promise to his people. Jesus uses the coming destruction of the temple as a springboard to point to his ultimate eternal victory, which he speaks of in verse 24. But in those days, after the trouble or the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven it's all it's almost as if jesus can't help but tell his disciples the ultimate end he's saying things are going to get really really bad it's going to kind of stink but take heart lift your chin up the destruction of the temple is not all there is that's not the end of the story after the trouble comes victory after death comes life after the fall of this city comes the city of god jesus has already predicted his death and resurrection and now he's telling of his return drawing on the image of the son of man prophesied in daniel 7 He declares that the entire cosmos will be shaken as he returns with power and glory to gather his people and to merge heaven and earth into the new Jerusalem. I mean, church, this should thrill us. This is the great hope of the Christian, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, conquering evil and establishing his kingdom physically on earth. 
When Jesus returns, he's returning to stamp out death and disease and sickness and the very presence of sin. When he returns, it will be to dry every tear his children have cried, to heal every wound they have received. The restoration Jesus will make will be so total, so complete, that the troubles and the tribulations experienced in this life will be thought of as nothing. They'll be thought of as light. It's for good reason Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The scope of God's sovereignty is so infinite that he uses even evil to bring about his great and glorious purposes. You see, the future world will be greater for having once been lost and broken. The future world will be greater for having once been broken and lost. Friends, God could have prevented the birth of evil, but instead he allowed it so that he might reveal the endless depths of his benevolence and the peakless heights of his grace in the gospel. God is so beautiful, so magnificent, so wonderful, We never would have been able to understand the breadth and height and length of his love. We would never have been able to imagine the great many dimensions of his love apart from his rescue of us. Friends, we've all rebelled against God, every one of us. We've all rebelled against him and against his rule and tried to set up our own rule. We've all tried to live our way instead of living his And the truth is, is that a good and righteous king protects his kingdom and his people and his reputation by demonstrating his authority by way of killing and imprisoning insurrectionists. A good king kills rebels, puts down the rebellion. But this isn't how God treats us. This isn't how the king of the universe treats us. Instead of exercising his power to rightly kill us, he substitutes himself for us. He takes our filthy garments and places his robe, his royal robes across our back. And he puts on our filthy garments and he takes the death sentence for us. He took the death we deserve and offers us his name and his riches. Jesus, the true king of the universe, gave up heaven to come to earth. God became a man, became a baby. Not only that, but he represented all humans. He lived a perfect life on their behalf, on our behalf. He died a perfect death on our behalf. And he rose from the dead to prove his identity as God the Son and his ability to save. The great joy of salvation and the beauty of the gospel would remain unknown to us apart from God's perfect governing of all of history. The scope of his sovereignty knows no bounds. It is limitless. Evil exists. 
Trouble has come and will come, but both will end. Friends, the first time Jesus came, it was to bear judgment for those who would trust in and follow him. When he returns, it will be on the back of a horse with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword in his mouth. And it won't be to bear judgment this time. It will be to bring judgment. He is gracious. He's patient. He is just. And he will snuff out evil. Which means that he will sentence all those who refuse to honor him as king to an eternity in hell. The hell that they chose over him. And to those that have been adopted into his family as sons and daughters by faith, to those that have been given his name, he will give all the riches of heaven, perfect peace and eternal fellowship with himself. This is the good news of the gospel, that you get God. How amazing is that? The creator of the universe, the one that spoke you and I and all that is into existence, takes on flesh, becomes like us, dies for us so that we can have relationship with him. More so that we can have right relationship with one another. How amazing is this God? This is the good news. He is good. The return of Jesus is the event to which all of history is headed. The end and eternity in the future mold the lives or ought to mold the lives of Christians. We obey Christ in the present and we wait for his return in the future. Jesus is our great hope. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm not using metaphorical language here. We really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, that he's feeling just fine. We believe that he's returning. He is our hope. Where is your hope? I recently came across an article about cryonics. Have you heard of this? Uh, cryonics is a low-temperature preservation of animals and humans who cannot be sustained by contemporary medicine with the hope that healing and resuscitation may be possible in the future. So basically, people get frozen, believing that the advance of medicine and technology will one day make life once more possible for them. The article suggested that cryonics was the best way to give hope to the terminally ill, and a portion of the article read like this. Cryonics could be utilized for a number of people in situations. The atheist Alzheimer sufferer who doesn't believe in an afterlife and wants science to give him another chance in the future. The suicidal schizophrenic who doesn't want to exist in the current world but isn't ready to give up altogether on existence. The terminally ill transhumanist cancer patient who doesn't want to lose half their body weight and undergo painful chemotherapy before being frozen or the extreme special needs or disabled person who wants to come back in an age where their disabilities can be fixed. There are many sound reasons why someone might choose cryonics. Whoever the person and whatever the reason, there is a belief that life can be better for them in some future time. Oddly enough, after reading this article, uh, I came across uh, another article in the New York Times uh, about Larry King, 
uh, wherein he was expressing his desire to be frozen. He's, he's kind of obsessed with death, if you know anything about Larry King. Uh, and this is a quote from him in the New York Times. I think it was this past week or the week before. This is what he says. The people behind cryonics are all, quote, nuts. But at least I know I will be frozen. I will die with a shred of hope. Other people have no hope. How terribly sad. I wonder, non-Christian, where is your hope? Friend, hope in Christ. Put your faith in the one who is risen from the dead and will likewise raise you. Christian, do not lose heart. The king is coming. After his eschatological prediction in verses 24 through 27, Jesus returns to the original question about the destruction of the temple, telling the disciples, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. I think that these things that Jesus is referring to are the things spoken of in regards to the coming destruction of the temple. And so he uses a fig tree, uh, which seems to be his favorite object lesson. Uh, It's also the most common plant in the Middle East. Everybody knows the fig tree. He uses the fig tree to teach another lesson. And he's basically saying, just like you can tell the summer is right around the corner when you see the fig tree put out leaves, so too will you be able to see or gauge that the destruction of the temple is coming if you are vigilant and heed my instruction. And then he adds in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus is telling them, I know the temple is beautiful. I know the city is marvelous. I know both look permanent, as if they will be there forever. But listen, they will both be destroyed in your lifetime. Then once again, we don't see Jesus just stop with bad news, but he presses forward to giving them good news. He encourages them once more as he continues with verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Temples fall, cities fall, nations disappear. The word of God does not. It does not fade. It does not wither. It does not fail. It remains. Jesus The Word made flesh is the radiance of the glory of God. And He does not fade. He remains. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Circumstances on earth change, but the Word of God does not. It endures. And so too does His people. He, through the lives of His people, even now, that's the church, that's you and I, He displays God's glory more clearly, more vibrantly than the temple ever did or could. Church, we are the temple. We are the new outpost of God's glory. We are what tells, tell the world what God is like by virtue of our love for one another, our relationship, our community. We speak and display the gospel in our lives. Because we have eyes that are set on that which is eternal versus that which merely appears permanent. I wonder what looks permanent to you and what looks passing. How does does it impact the way you live? I mean, how do you decide where to spend yourself? How to spend your life? 
This is what I'm driving at. Are you investing in something that is eternal or something that seems permanent but is actually temporary? Where are you spending yourself? Jesus stays on the theme of encouragement. He starts talking about his second coming again. The first thing I want to point out here in verse 32 is that Jesus says quite plainly, no one knows when he will return, right? Let's read it. But concerning that day or hour, just like I told you, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I think it's safe to say we can put away our prophecy charts and we, we can ignore the end of the world predictions from folks like Harold Camping, who's predicted the end of the world multiple times, most recently, uh, May 21st, 2011. We're still here. We can ignore the New Age advocates who said the end of the Mayan calendar would mean the end of the world, December 12, 2012. We can ignore them because Jesus says no one knows, not even him. Jesus in his human nature does not know the timing of his return. So I'm pretty sure that you do not know. Uh, A quick sidebar here for those that are interested in the theological nature of this question. It's my position that Jesus in his his, uh, human nature doesn't know the answer to this, but in his divine nature he does, and he just chooses not to call to mind that information. However, I'm willing to admit to the possibility that this piece of knowledge is entirely unknown, even to his divine nature, by virtue of his um, subordination inside of the Trinity. Uh, If you're not interested in that, that sounded like crazy talk. Um, But if you are, we can talk more about it later, and let's move on. Uh, The main thing here is that no human knows the time of Jesus' return. But what we do know is that Jesus will return. What else is good here, what we're about to come up on, is he doesn't leave us with nothing. He leaves us with a honey-do list of sorts, right? He says, I'm going, I'll be back, you aren't going to know when, but here's a list of things to do. And This is where he starts in verse 33. It's actually kind of all the same thing. Be on guard, keep awake. You hear me, Dale? Keep awake back there. Immediate application. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Uh, sidebar here, I think it's funny that when later on we find uh, Peter and the guys in the garden falling asleep constantly. They can't stay awake. It's just funny to me. Anyhow, we're told to be on guard, to stay awake, to keep watch. And, and what it means to do these things, I think, is, is just to be faithful to serving the Lord, continuing to walk with God. His primary concern is that we obey in the present as we wait for the future. Not that we understand each and every detail about the future, which, if nothing else, this message should show you we don't really understand each and every detail about the future. When Jesus talks about the future, his words are meant to change the way we live in the present. Living with an eternal perspective, it's supposed to shape our lives now. Uh, For example, as many of you may know, I volunteer with the Wintergreen Rescue Squad. Somehow Mike uh, talked me into that. I might say manipulated me. I don't know if that's strong enough. Pushed me into it. Anyhow, it's good. It's a good thing. I need to do it. It's fun. 
But as a result, I'm on call for at least 36 hours a month. And so when I get on call, when I'm on call, I get dressed up in all the official gear, which if you see me, you know isn't all that official. It's a t-shirt that says like Rescue Squad on it and some funky looking pants, right? But anyhow, when I'm on call, I carry around a pager all the time so that at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, I can be ready to go. And I never know when a sound, they call them tones, is going to blare through the pager, but I have to be ready. If I'm not ready, it could cost the medics valuable time and perhaps even cost someone their life. It's important that I'm ready. Likewise, church, we are to live on call, waiting for the tones of Christ's return to echo across the metaphorical pager. We're to wait for the sky to crack open and Christ to come. We want to be found awake or obedient. We want to be found in Christ. This means walking faithfully with him and in community with one another. Living with an eternal perspective means shaping our lives with the gospel. Being alert or on guard means striving to lovingly obey our loving God. It means perseverance in discipleship. It means enduring until the end. Friends, to be caught sleeping is to be caught without Christ. Non-Christian, do not be caught sleeping. There is a day coming when it will be too late to follow Jesus. So, So don't indulge your sin today and say to yourself, I'll follow Christ next time. I'll follow him tomorrow. The devil always says tomorrow. But Jesus says today. Today is the day of salvation. Follow him. Church, trouble will come. But the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. And the king will return. So live ready. Live on call. Endure. Stay awake. And watch. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beautiful mysteries that are wrapped up there in it. Uh, We thank you for the tensions that we have to deal with in Scripture. And we thank you that you have made the most important things about you and about life clear to us. Pray that you would help us to endure in our faith until the very end, that you would help us to run a good race that's centered on you. Father, help us to be deeply in love with you. Help us to be obedient to you, because of our affection for you, not out of cold obligation. Lord, we thank you that we can't do anything to earn your grace or to earn salvation, but that we can simply receive grace when we come to you with the empty hands of faith day after day and say, you are my God. Save me. You alone. Your work is the only work that can save me. We thank you that you are not stingy with your grace, but you benevolently pour it out without measure. Lord, you gave all of yourself for us. Lord, we pray that we might unite ourselves to you in such a way that we would declare with Paul truly, the life I live is no longer mine because I've been crucified with Christ. And just as you have been raised, Lord Jesus, that we might too say, we have been raised and will be raised. God, you are so good. And we look forward to your eminent return. Help us to live ready. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.